0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey you guys, this is Brad Listy. I'm an avid reader. You know that I'm constantly seeking to learn new things, to pack my head full of information, to gain insight into the books and characters that fascinate me, to meet writers, to talk to writers, to better appreciate my world the world that I live in, the world that you live in. That's why I love The Great Courses Plus. It's a streaming learning service that offers in-depth, reliable information on just about anything under the sun, from history to psychology to science to literature, even cooking, even learning a new language. There is unlimited access to thousands of topics at The Great Courses Plus, all of it presented by renowned experts who are passionate about what they teach. And best of all, it's user-friendly. You can watch or listen entirely on your own schedule from wherever you are lately I've been enjoying a course called stories about great storytellers that makes sense right I like talking to storytellers I like learning about storytellers I like learning their stories I have been listening over the past week to a course on J.R.R. R. Tolkien we all know that he wrote the Lord of the Rings but do you know why I know why there is so much to discover at The Great Courses Plus. I know you're going to love it. And to help you get started, they are offering other people, listeners, a special deal. A limited time offer, a full month of unlimited access to the entire library for free. It's free. Sign up now through my special URL and start enjoying your free month. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash other PPL. The Great coursesplus.com slash other PPL. All right.
1: You are not alone. You have found
0: other people.
1: You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Oh, Gee, right. what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Okay.
0: Just one person at just one time. How's it going, everybody? This is Brad Listie. I'm in Los Angeles. This is the Other People podcast. It's nice to be with you. I am very pleased to have Madre Vijay on the program today. Her debut novel is called The Far Field. It is available from Grove Press. The Far Field, Madre Vijay, coming up momentarily. I have uh, many great episodes coming up. I feel good about it had some conversations recently including the one that you're about to hear that make me excited and i also want to say thank you to everybody who has taken the time to uh, send word either via twitter following uh, the podcast at other ppl or via email to let me know what you think my uh, email address is letters at other i've been getting some good feedback <laughs> this episode is uh, brought to you by DeZank Books, DeZank Books, publisher of this month's uh, official pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is the novel 37 by Peter Stenson, recipient of multiple starred reviews, Uh, a book about uh, cults, uh, a horror novel for people with literary tastes, 37 by Peter Stenson, available now from DeZank Books, the official February pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. So Madre Vige came over and, uh, was just an absolute delight to meet and to talk with her debut novel is the kind of uh, debut that one hopes for when one is about to debut. It has been receiving great critical acclaim and uh, a lot of enthusiasm from the reading public. And I am very pleased to have had the chance to catch her at this particular moment in her career, just as she is taking off. So here you go, ladies and gentlemen, this is my conversation with Madre Vijay and her debut novel, One More Time, is called The Far Field.
1: No, I began it more than a year after I left.
0: So what were you doing when you were in Iowa?
1: Well, in theory, I was writing stories, but I think what I was really doing was uh, just apprenticing myself to the craft as... um, you know, pretentious as, as that yeah. sounds. As what, one I was, does. As one does. I mean, as one ought to. I think I was just writing, um, experimenting, and uh, putting the stories in a drawer immediately and never looking at them again. Were they bad? Uh, they were bad. Um, but they were more more than bad. They were just experiments. You know, I was trying to find, I was trying to um, work my muscles, so to speak, uh, writing in different voices, writing different styles, uh, different you know just 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 being as uninhib- uninhibited as i could be
0: yeah I, I was the same way in graduate school I, I remember writing a story in this like really like kind of like messy rambling voice and... and it's
1: important to do that i think you don't i didn't feel the pressure to uh find the i didn't feel pressure to find the project right away i was i was happy just, um, practicing.
0: You were okay. Cause I have, I've had lots of people come through and talk to me who went to Iowa. Some people loved it. Some people hated it. sounds like you had a good experience.
1: Yes. I think it was very useful for me. It taught me the things that I needed to be taught. Um, which were, which were, uh, the, the patience that is required to do this work. Uh, the, the long periods of absolute blankness and um despair, you know, those kinds of things. I
0: don't know things. what
1: you're talking about. Ah, right. Well see, you you're far more talented than <laughs> I am. Um, so those those things those it was almost like a a test. If I could weather those two years only writing and come out at the end of it still wanting to write. It was Pretty clear that that was what I wanted to do.
0: So you wrote these stories. You did the workshops. You met, uh, you know, other students, obviously, and yes. made writer writer friends. Was it was the environment competitive in a way that you found off putting? It doesn't sound like it. No,
1: it wasn't. While I was there, the people that were there were very um, supportive of each other and uh, were really trying to understand what the other person was trying to do. Um, in his or her work. And so I never felt that my success came at the cost of anyone else's or that theirs came at the cost of mine. I really did not feel that way.
0: And the truth is that there's always room for another book. Agreed. I mean, you know, it's not like there's some finite shelf space out there. Yes. Uh, So it's a little silly, I think. But then again, there's only so many authors that our culture can actually uh, really pay attention to. I mean, you know, there's only a small handful who actually get a big, huge readership.
1: Yes, but I don't think anybody there or most people there were thinking in those terms. They were just trying to write the best fiction or nonfiction or poetry or whatever they were writing, the best version of it they could write. And I don't think anybody was thinking in terms of market share. Really? Well, maybe I'm being naive or wishful or nostalgic about it, but I don't really remember. Sure. I mean, people were aware of who was, you know, being, who was popular in a given year or who's got a
0: big advance. Yeah,
1: sure. Um, But most of the people that were at Iowa while I was there were not, you know, sending books out. They were just working on individual stories and somebody would get it placed in Whichever journal and that was cause for celebration it for me it was a very um, whatever competition or uh, sense of uh, urgency there was was productive
0: yeah well that's good that's the way it should be I, th-
1: I agree you
0: yes. know I mean I didn't feel any of that in my graduate program but my graduate program was at the University of Southern California which you know it wasn't it's not Iowa it's not Irvine it's not one of these like elite graduate writing programs. In fact, the program that I went to was uh, dismantled because the guy who was running it was kind of a fraud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, um, I i mean, elitism in those programs is a bit of a, a red herring. You, I mean, you either you do the work or you don't do the work. Right. Uh, and the university is lucky in that it, it has the funding, which is more or less why it continues to, to exist. Um, but it surely can't guarantee anything more than that. It's...
0: So, so how did you get to Iowa? Like, was this something, cause you're, you're from India, you're from Bangalore, India originally. Yes. So how do you go from, uh um, you know, being born in Bangalore, India to being at the Iowa Writers Workshop? Was this something that you planned out? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. It was really a matter of several accidents. Uh, and I'm still a bit shocked at the fact that I lived in Iowa for two years. I never thought that was a sentence I would be able to say to people. <laughs> uh, I ha- i never even intended to leave India. I w- did my undergrad at a small liberal arts university in Wisconsin called Lawrence University.
0: Where? I'm from Wisconsin originally.
1: It's in Appleton, Wisconsin.
0: Okay. So up is- towards Green Bay.
1: Yes, exactly. Hmm. And I only went there at the suggestion of a high school teacher in in, in Bangalore who got a letter from a U.S. university saying, can you recommend some students to apply, you know, for a scholarship? So since I was applying for one scholarship at one university, I decided to apply to a few others. And Lawrence was one of them. And that's where I went eventually.
0: It's about 40 below zero in Lawrence uh, right now.
1: It is probably because
0: of this polar vortex. Yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) I I narrowly escaped it. I was just there a few weeks ago. Oh, you were? I was like
0: a victorious homecoming.
1: (laughs) It was more, it was more a way to thank the the teachers I had there who were very instrumental in my going to Iowa or becoming a writer at all.
0: Really? Mm Mm-hmm. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Okay, so you, you go from uh, southern India to near Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yes. How was the culture shock? Was not, it a shock?
1: Uh, not as... a. Uh, drastic as you might imagine. There was a sense of, uh, the the Midwest has a sense of, um, sort of warm family, you know, connections that was familiar to me. Uh, my roommate was from Appleton, so her parents, you know, were very kind to me and took me in, you know, spoiled me. And, uh, I was very lucky to have wonderful teachers. So no, I mean other than the coin operated laundry machines which always confused me. I really Why? I don't know. I just like, <laughs> somehow never could figure out how much to put in or when it was done or I don't I don't know. Yeah. Um But no, it it seemed I I took to it far more easily than I thought I would.
0: Wow, okay. And so you get there and immediately are you thinking like what did you did you know what you wanted to study when you showed up or did you find it there?
1: I knew partly and I found the rest of it. I had always intended to be an English major, simply because I loved to read. And um, I discovered psychology there. I was a, an English and psychology double major. And psychology was real was a result of serendipity. I took one class and then I took another and then I just, I was addicted. I I really loved it. And I intended to. I never intended to be a writer. Other than in my most secret heart, I was supposed to be a researcher. I wanted to get a PhD. In fact, I had an acceptance in hand to a PhD program, uh, which, needless to say, I, I never went to in the end because I decided to to apply to graduate school in writing instead.
0: So you were going to be a, a psychology I was, researcher. I was,
1: I was going to, yes, exactly. So
0: what about psychology did you love when you took those classes?
1: That's a great question. I, there was such a, a sense of both order and mystery in the work that I was doing, in the sense that you could say a tendency... You know, one tendency, one human tendency predicts this other human behavior. I mean, those were the kinds of experiments that I was reading about and running. Um, you know, if you show this psychological trait, you are more likely to do that. So that there was a real sort of thrill in seeing those patterns. But then you always there was always more to learn and there were always more influences that You had to account for. And so the whole thing became this extraordinarily complex and interesting puzzle to which the answer would always remain elusive. Um, I think that's probably what I like about writing too, is the sense of pattern combined with sheer mystery.
0: And just bottomless.
1: Bottomless, exactly. You can chase it forever.
0: See, but if I were taking psychology classes, I think I did take one. And it was always just like me trying to diagnose myself and like fix myself. Was yeah. there any of that? No. None of that? No. You, know, you seem way more well-adjusted than I am. <laughs> I was no. always like, what's wrong I with me? I just
1: think that's a that's a Pandora's box I've not opened.
0: <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. Next book. Um, so, okay. So then childhood in India. Yes. Uh, you said you love books. So I'm imagining you were reading in, enthusiastically so from a young age.
1: Yes. I read a lot all the time. There was a bo- book in each of our books bathrooms i read
0: what kind of book are we talking like a big time novel or just like light reading
1: (laughs) honestly i didn't really know what i was reading when i was a kid because i i just picked up whatever i found i would go to the library almost every day the books because i grew up in india and i was an english-speaking child you know and a nice post-colonial child i read a lot of british books enid Blyton's and and those kinds of things um, but I was also grew up at a time when a lot of American books were entering uh, the market, so I read all the Nancy Drews and the Hardy Boys and all of those things. But then I would also read just whatever I found, you know, the the Panchatantra comics or you know Archie. But to me, it was all the same. Like I had no conception of high art or low art, or you know, this is this is um, literary or this is not.
0: Yeah. Kids are wonderful that way. They yes, don't make those distinctions. Exactly.
1: I didn't, I had, I had no interest in who wrote the book, when the book was written for whom the book was written or what it was supposed to be meant for. To me, words on a page were just inherently interesting. So I would just pick up whatever I, whatever I could find.
0: And your parents are, were like, were readers?
1: Yeah. Both of my parents are readers and, um, uh, my mom actually reads in different languages. I, I sadly am more or less confined to English, though I can read in other languages, just not as well.
0: Which other languages?
1: I can read Hindi. Um, really, <laughs> that's right. Word. I read a little bit of Urdu. Um, my mother tongue is Tamar, which I never learned to read. Okay, and your mom? And Kannada, a little bit of Kannada.
0: What about your mom? What, do, what does she read in?
1: The same languages, plus a few.
0: Okay, yeah. but just better than you?
1: Better than me. She, reads, she can read Tamar very, very well.
0: Okay, so, and but neither of your parents are, are writers.:
1: Neither of them are
0: writers. Oh, but they encouraged this in you.
1: Oh yes, I mean, they, I don't think they could have <laughs> there was nothing to encourage. I was obsessed, so they didn't discourage me. <laughs> it's, right. it's more accurate. Um, although they, they, they did at some point decide that I needed more friends, so they, they made me start playing a sport.
0: <laughs> what, and which was?
1: Which was badminton.
0: Okay. Is that big in India?
1: Very big, like very big like, in India and school? across Asia and Europe as well. I think one of the few places it's not popular um, is
0: is the United States. I played badminton as a kid.
1: No, oh, but you played it outside.
0: Yeah, it was badminton. like it was like a yard sport. That's
1: not badminton.
0: That's not badminton. Mm-mm. What? It's, it's meant to be played indoors. It is.
1: It is an indoor sport. Oh, it is. What? You can't play a a sport <laughs> with a feathered shuttlecock outside.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's wrong. Well, well, we like to introduce the elements. <laughs> adds a dimension. <laughs> right. Wow, were you good?
1: Um, I was all right for a while. I played um, at the at the national level, which means I represented my state. And then it became clear that I I I didn't have the talent, basically, to become an international player. So I had to choose either really commit to it or do something else.
0: Well, but you were pretty good then. If you had that choice in front of you, or at least like you were, it was like a consideration.
1: And there were, I was fine. I was all right.
0: Let's just leave it at that. You're the best badminton player I've ever met.
1: Yes, that's, well, that may be true, actually. (laughs) I don't know who else you've had on here. Uh,
0: So many badminton players. (laughs) Um, So were there any events or moments that when you look back on your life, you feel like were pivotal in the formation of your artistic self? Like, is it something that you think like, well, that was just there from birth? Or do you think it's more of a nurture? It's like, is there some combination of nurture or life events that were formative?
1: That is a tough question to answer. I really don't know. I think it was probably present always, this desire to make sense of the world through stories then first the desire to read them and then the desire to copy them that i did a lot of that i would retell stories that had already been all greek and roman myths that i you know i read I would then write my own versions of those stories. So I didn't start out just, you know, writing my own. I would re- rewrite somebody else's
0: story. It's like covering somebody else's song.
1: Exactly. But I would do. I would do that. Yeah. I could. I could release a whole anthology of, you know, <laughs> Were you? But
0: were you band. making? Were you making your own embellishments?
1: Yes. So I would invent scenes. I would put in characters that hadn't been there before. So it does. When I think about it, it does seem like a very gradual process of becoming comfortable with the notion of approaching the world through language.
0: That seems kind of like a healthy evolution.
1: Um, i is the only one I had. So, yeah. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, for me, it's like, I look at my own, uh, formation. I'm still not clear on it, but I'm like, I think the fact that I was raised Catholic and didn't like it and didn't feel like heard, so I'm like, maybe that's why I can't stop talking into a microphone and trying to write. <laughs> <laughs> or there are like deaths or losses that I experienced that I feel like really shook me, that like, you know, made me turn more inward. Sure. But like, that's a little bit of conjecture. Like, I don't, maybe it would have happened anyway.
1: Yes, and it's all conjecture. There's no way either you or I can know for certain why we why we do this this work. But I, I suppose there's a... There's something to the idea that no matter what your upbringing is, no matter what the events of your life are, there is probably, from what I know of the writers I've talked to, a sense of not feeling quite um, meshed inside whichever life you were born into, right? A a slight sense of being an outsider, being slightly out of step. That, is, that sounds familiar, right? So, <laughs> I mean, I had, I, I'm sure I, I had that too.
0: How were you socially as a kid?
1: I was, I was completely normal, I, and I, I wasn't withdrawn. I played sports, as I said. I was outgoing. I, I participated in all the, the did activities. I had did, a very full school life
0: so happy childhood very much so. no big freakouts. nothing you don't seem like you would have freaked out <laughs> i freaked out okay a little bit <laughs> i mean not for long but it was there uh and then this this decision to uh come to the united states mm-hmm. uh what was your perception of the states growing up was it did it play in your imagination like culturally because of the books that you were reading or maybe movies that you were seeing
1: the for me the united states was my aunt's houses. I have two aunts that live on the East Coast. And when the only two times that I came before I came for college, we would we were in their houses. The first time I was three, I don't remember anything. The second time I was 13. Uh, so I had a clearer memory of that. And it was just cousins and playing and you know, those, those sorts of things and a few tourist sites. So i had never really thought about the nation as a, as a landscape or as a collection of people. And uh, it was only it was only really when I got to college that I began to to think about the various components of
0: America. What have I gotten myself into? <laughs> this crazy place.
1: Yeah. Well, they're all crazy places.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess so. I feel like we're at a particularly crazy moment in American life. Yeah. You sense that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think I do. But it's, I, I do think it's. We're in a, an unusual place in world history.
0: Hmm. And then, you know, uh, you write about India, and I think this is a somewhat common tale uh, in literary history where somebody is expatriated and is able to maybe see uh, their native uh, country more clearly from a distance. or Is that, is that too trite?
1: No, I do think there's something to that. Um, I mean, that is, of course, contradicted by all the fantastic Indian writers that have never lived outside India. I I think that my desire to write was exacerbated by not being in India, uh, and I know that other writers, exiled or expatriated, have had have have cited homesickness and nostalgia as a, as a reason for writing uh, and writing as a way to return. For me, it wasn't quite that because I would go back and I, in fact, lived in India for the greater part of writing
0: this book. Oh, you did? You went back?
1: Oh, yes. So I have not had the experience of leaving once and for all. For me, there was no...
0: You're not in exile.
1: I'm not (laughs) at all.
0: You're allowed back in.
1: Yes. Not, not, not yet anyway. Um, So I would go back, you know, for me, it was very much having a a foot in each world.
0: That's great, though.
1: Yeah, no, it was really the best
0: of... It's nice to have options. Agreed. I kind of feel that way. Like, I wish, like, I had some sort of, like, dual citizenship or the ability to, like, get out if need be.
1: (laughs) Well, you do have the passport.
0: (laughs) I have the passport, but it's like, I I don't know, I guess if I had, like citizenship rights or Commonwealth, you know, Commonwealth countries, you can kind of bounce around and work more easily. Right. I feel like there's so much paperwork and difficulty and then there's language barriers.
1: Right. Well, I mean, as an person with an American passport, you are in in a far better position than a person with an Indian passport. (laughs) Yeah. You've (laughs) got
0: difficulties.
1: Oh, yes. Just in terms of travel, it is harder.
0: Uh, So let's talk about this, this period after Iowa. Okay. So you go through Iowa, you have this, you know, really positive experience. You, I think the biggest, sounds like the biggest thing you learned is that you had the patience. Yes. Like you went through it, you did nothing but write for two years. And at the end of those two years, you still wanted to I do it. I still
1: wanted to write.
0: And that was kind of the test that you gave yourself.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: And, and the results were clear.
1: The results were positive.
0: So then you get out and you're like, okay, I got to write a novel.
1: Yes. Well, I, yeah. I don't think I, I, I don't think it was so much. I, I, I want to write a novel, but I, I wanted to write this
0: book. Why?
1: It is. It was something that I had been thinking about for a while, and once I left Iowa, I felt emotionally, physically, psychologically ready to write it
0: and what's the what's the origin story like where does the idea come Because like some writers uh, you know it's from the inside out, other writers it's from the outside in like you sound like i like I was uh reading some interviews that you've done, and it doesn't sound like this is you, this is not auto fiction
1: oh no 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 no,
0: this is a co- this is a complete creation, yes, but absolutely. are you drawing from any kind of life experience or people you know in a in a relatively direct way or is it mostly
1: no i'm not drawing i'm on the only thing I'm drawing on is my knowledge of the the setting that's about it, but the the characters are pure fiction
0: and but why why this story and like where where did the idea begin?
1: I think that would be this uh, an answer as complicated as why did you become a writer <laughs> I don't know. I suspect that when, especially when you ask debut writers that question, their answer, or maybe I'm hoping this because I'm going to provide you a very vague answer and I'm hoping I'm not the only one, that the book is in some way a product of their entire life up to that point. It is everything from all corners coming together. That's how it feels for me. I had, before I even got to Iowa, I had written a story, and I don't know why, I had written the story about a mother, a daughter, her daughter, and a man who visits from a distant state, the state of Jammu and Kashmir, and I didn't do anything, I didn't even think of that story for two years, more than two years, and then when I was thinking, when I was getting ready to leave Iowa, I began thinking of that story again, and what it would be like as a novel. But then I didn't really use that story. I just, I began
0: afresh. Not even thinking that that was the story that you were writing?
1: No. In fact, I, I for a year, I, I wrote a, an entirely different novel that was vaguely connected to that story, but had had none of the same characters. And that story, that novel, well, it never became a novel because it was quite bad. I, I dumped it after a year and then I went, and then I went back, really went back to the story and I started with those, those people, but a very altered versions of them.
0: Okay. So what's the, was there an epiphany that brought you back in a concentrated way or was it more just like, well, shit, this is all I got?
1: <laughs> yeah. It, I don't think it was an epiphany. I think, um, yeah. if it, What is the opposite of an epiphany? It was desperation. I think that brought me back to the 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 um that original story.
0: See, I like hearing this.
1: Inspiration. <laughs> we, well, no,
0: just but I mean, like it's always. I think it's always comforting, and it's probably comforting for many people listening to hear the circuitous path that people take to the oh. mountaintop and publishing, and how many false starts there are, and how many months and years are spent in the wilderness. It's not uncommon. Absolutely, it's and, part of it.
1: And in my case, it was years. It was a long time. And even when I began this book and then I finished a draft, that wasn't, it wasn't, I didn't even, I didn't even send, I, I went back and I did it again and again and again and again. Um, so it took a long time.
0: So I also feel like a lot of times the thing that we wind up writing about that's successful, that really resonates on the page and reaches people and has publication success is the very thing that we tend to avoid in the drafting process, it's like the thing we just don't want to write about. And it's like, that's the thing you should be writing about. Right? Was there any of that?
1: Yes. And it took a long time to understand what the thing was.
0: Do you have a complicated relationship with your mother? I have to ask because the character... Doesn't in-
1: everybody? I mean- no, I actually don't. No, the, the mother has nothing to do with my mother.
0: That's interesting. Mm-hmm. See, I'm so self-absor- like self-absorbed or whatever that like as a creative person, like it's all coming from in. Like mm-hmm. you just created this mother character... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who's like so rich and dimensional and comp, uh, complicated, um, like sort of out of thin air. Was there anybody who was a basis?
1: No. What I like to say is that uh, the mother is, is the, the mother says the kinds of things I would like to say, you know, but I can't say for fear of you,
0: you can say them on this show. <laughs> this is your chance. I don't think so.
1: <laughs> I think that would be the quickest way to get me booted off the show. <laughs> Uh, she is, she says whatever she thinks, no matter how rude or offensive or insulting. And there was, there was a freedom in writing that kind of character in yeah. a person who was absolutely unafraid of social consequences.
0: You know, I had a, my grandmother was sort of that way, but she wasn't like, uh, contentious. It wasn't rude. It was a little wacky, Mm -hmm. but she didn't have a filter in a beautiful way. And I always found it to, it was a great relief to be around her. Exactly. And if I'm being honest, uh, like I love people with inappropriate senses of humor and humor, you know, that's where you're sort of like pushing, uh, pushing things and coming up to the line and occasionally stepping over it. And like, I've always had a pretty, um, freewheeling sense of humor. Like I I, I'm accepting of a lot of different kinds of humor and I love being around people who are inappropriate, but I feel like like it's maybe I feel like it's, I guess maybe it's always been like this, but in the age of the internet and social media, I feel much more hesitant to be like publicly jokey. I don't know. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's like it's kind of nice to be around people who just don't give a shit. Yeah. Um, and then I also find that sometimes you know it's not like a license to be mean that I'm trying to advocate for. You no, know, or I hurtful.
1: think. I think the kinds of humor that I like best is a humor that's that is based in language that pl- is playful and plays around with language and you know turns everything slightly upside down. I do. I like that a lot.
0: You like puns.
1: No, I don't mean at the, such a basic level. I, I like, yeah, I do. I mean, I do like puns.
0: but I like puns. But
1: I know what you mean.
0: Yeah. Um, so you started writing this back in India. Yes. All right. So what prompted the move back? Were you just like, well, I'm done with graduate school. I'm going to just go back. And like, what was the calculation?
1: Well, I moved back to India, but I wasn't living in Bangalore. I was living in a small village in the state of Jammu and Kashmir and I was I was working as a volunteer there and that was where I wrote it and what prompted the move back was I thought well I want to write this novel I should probably go live there
0: <laughs> cuz you you knew that you wanted this setting to figure into it
1: in a vague way the it's a large state and so when I was initially thinking of the novel I was thinking of setting it in a different part of the state but I didn't end up living in that part of the state and the novel in, ended up being moved in location.
0: And there's like, you know, there's these, uh, this political or cultural strife in that part of India, which I, uh, feel bad not knowing or having greater context for, but can you describe kind of the basic parameters of it for people listening? Cause I think so many people listening probably don't have enough context
1: Sure, um i I will with the caveat, I mean, this is very much a novel. there's no my goal was never to bring the political situation to light. Uh, I don't have i was I was writing very much a, a personal story. The state of Jammu and Kashmir, or the region, I should say, um, came into being in its current form in 1947 when the British were leaving India. And the state, I mean, the two countries were being partitioned, and you know, Pakistan came into existence at the same time. And uh, Jammu and Kashmir was a region that was between these two n- new countries, and it had a majority Muslim population, which was an argument for it going to Pakistan. But it had a Hindu king, and the king was did not decide in time, which country he wanted to join. And so there was violence broke out at that time. And he ended up asking the Indian army for in the Indian state for help. And they gave him help on the condition that he accede to India. So that is the sort of o- or origin of the, of this, this sort of current iteration of the conflict. Um, but Kashmir has had a very, very long history, thousands of years as ha- as has most of India and that that part of the world so right now it is um, there it, it's still a volatile region it hasn't been resolved. you have um, c- uh, Kashmiri uh, civilians who are uh, Agitating against the Indian state, you have the Indian military present, and the Indian police. uh, And um, then there's all sorts of complicated negotiations and with Pakistan. So I this is one of those things that you just cannot put in a nutshell without immediately saying, making some leaving, making some omission or making some mistake. So I will, I keep keep asking you
0: questions where I'm like, can you explain something that's incredibly nuanced and complicated? (laughs) It's good practice. (laughs) Tell me about the history of psychology. (laughs) Um, Well,
1: back in 1721.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So did you, uh, like, why were you drawn to this region and to, you know, this, um, Place with all of its history and history of conflict.
1: I think possibly because of exactly what you talked. We talked about earlier. My childhood was a very ordinary one. It was a very happy one. It's nothing remarkable about it. Uh, and I grew up at the very other end of the country, from from Kashmir. And growing up. I never even thought about it. I mean, the people around me weren't really talking about it. It appear, When it appeared in the news, it was kind of almost a throwaway mention. And there was, you know, real violence going on at the time when I was growing up in Kashmir. So I... Found that when I when I grew old enough to think about it, I found it odd that these very immense events had taken place, and I had been relatively shielded from it—not relatively, entirely shielded from it. Um, that was that caused a a level of dissonance. So I decided that the best way to think about it further and to would be to write about it
0: isn't it weird how you can have these blind spots absolutely but it's also inevitable uh, to a degree like you can't be especially as a child aware of everything or absorbing everything but i feel that you know there are certain world events or events here in the united states that are so large and so problematic and i can find out about them like 10 15 years after the fact and be like where the hell was i like, where was my head when this was happening? Yeah. And it's disconcerting.
1: It is disconcerting.
0: And this one happened to just lodge itself into your imagination, maybe more so than others. Yes. And so you have you have this kind of uh, general idea, these characters, and you have the setting. Mm-hmm. And you finish Iowa and you say to yourself, I'm going to go back and I'm going to essentially do experiential research.
1: No, I wouldn't put it that way. I mean, I, I wasn't saying it you know it wasn't so cold i just wanted to go
0: you wanted to see it
1: yeah but but you know for me i the reason i was there was really to to work
0: oh it was so primary was i'm going to volunteer yeah what kind of volunteer were you i was teaching teaching what
1: i was teaching at a school
0: i know but what subject is that?
1: oh all english and lower lower level maths and geography history whatever you know for for young for young kids. Did you like it? Oh I loved it. Yeah. I really, really loved it. It was it entirely occupied me for for a long time.
0: And then writing in the evenings?
1: Mornings. Like, early well, so in the mornings.
0: That's your ritual?
1: That was my ritual then, yes.
0: Now you live like in Hawaii and you just what you write whenever?
1: Like... <laughs> no, I always, I still teach but <laughs> oh, you do. I, I do I do I do have more time to to work. So I, I do write in the mornings still. Oh.
0: Okay. But the writing of this book took place mostly in the mornings before you would go to teach. Yes. What time are you getting up? Six. Okay. It's not too like terribly austere.
1: No, no I'm not. I'm not one of those. I've Murakami gets up at four, three or something like up, that. I get
0: up at like four. You or four do? Three. Yeah, but I've got young kids. It's the only time. Like I'm not that hardcore, but I can't do the things I want to do without feeling guilty unless I do it like before everybody gets up.
1: Right. I um I I like my sleep.
0: But look at me. I look like <laughs> I'm a disaster. I've got rings under my eyes. I'm getting old.
1: No, nonsense. You're beautiful.
0: <laughs> you heard that everybody? I'm, uh so okay, and the book uh, in the drafting phase once you came back to it just to try to like trace the history of this thing. You sort of wrote away from you know for a year and then abandoned that draft. Right. And then came back and said, "Okay, now I'm going to write this story and these characters and you sort of zeroed in, was there a difference in the intensity of your concentration? Um, I say this sort of selfishly because I'm in this period right now. And I think a lot of writers go through it where you're just like, I I just got to get words on the page. I got to sort of write my way through whatever phase (laughs) phase I'm in, in this endless process. Uh, but then at some point, you sort of decide or you figure out what it is you want to say, or you just narrow your focus. And then the actual work itself maybe raises itself in a level in, you know, in terms of level of intensity.
1: You mean in the second draft?
0: Yeah. Because like, it sounds like the second draft was pretty brand new.
1: Oh yeah. I started with a blank page.
0: And I'm like, you know, not to be precious, but like there's this old like story and I don't, I don't think it's apocryphal where like young Ernest Hemingway shows like his early stories to Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. He's like, here, read these. Cause right. he wanted her approval. And she was like, she read them and then she was like, oh, that's nice. Now start over and this time. Concentrate, <laughs> right. you know, I sort of feel like that's good advice for me sometimes where it's like, wow, it's really impressive that you just wrote 4,000 words, right? And, you know, this really permissive way, but like, what do you have? Like, it's time to actually like put your brain to this.
1: Yes. And I, it was, it was like that for me as well. I, the first draft, it's almost like you write the first draft without really looking at it. You know what I mean? You're almost looking away. You're just throwing it all out there. You're not in, entirely sure what any of it is. And then in the subsequent drafts, you actually have to make sense.
0: Yeah it's got to be clear you it's there's got, a there's a reader right. at the other end of this hopefully
1: oh at yeah at some point but i was a long way even then from thinking of a reader but i did have to see what i had and i did have to then start to make decisions whereas in the beginning the first draft i was not making any decisions i thought well why not this and this even though they're directly contradictory to each other i just would put it all down as you exactly as you said but then, then you would have, then you have to start actually cutting and make, making choices about what belongs and what doesn't belong. In order to know what belongs, you have to know what the damn thing is. Yeah. Yes. So that was exactly what I it feel was that like. very
0: deeply. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, was anything from that you know that year draft that you ba- abandoned was anything from that functionally useful in the book that we? Now no. Had? It was all just garbage. It
1: was all, it's all garbage.
0: Do you consider that part of the process a learning experience that you will not necessarily repeat or a necessary part of the creative process that you will probably repeat in subsequent books?
1: I think it was probably necessary. I think that I have the kind of mind that will always lead me down a certain number of garden paths. And I have more or less come to accept that. The sec, the problem with now doing, because I, I started a second book, and the problem with knowing how the first one went is this notion that what I'm writing now is most likely that for one year of waste. And <laughs> you're <Yes,
0: actually. So, laughs> just going to abandon all this right, anyway at Exactly,
1: some point. but there's no choice, Right. and that's why I think it's necessary. Because well, I wouldn't be able to get to the whatever the thing is going to be un- unless I really exhaust this possibility.
0: Just like patience and forbearance. Yeah. You have to have a high pain tolerance You'd to be need, a novelist. I think
1: I keep saying, I, I, what I've come to realize is that you need stamina. You need, just like an athlete, you need stamina as like, a writer. Like
0: a champion badminton player.
1: <laughs> which I am not. <laughs> which,
0: which you could have been. If you not decided to be literary. <laughs> uh wow so you get uh you get going six o'clock in the morning before teaching and like how long would you work for like my listeners love the nitty-gritty of how it actually works so it's like were you at two hours
1: two and a half hours usually a thousand words
0: that's what you would try to go for a thousand words yeah would you usually get it
1: yes eight nine hundred eighty seven something like
0: that longhand or on a computer oh computer a computer, yeah. and we're not like like because I'm sort of like at this point now where I'm like I'm just going to edit myself to death if I'm on a, if I'm on a computer. Would you allow yourself to to go? Would you, would you, you know? I guess it, I guess you did if you were getting the words.
1: Yeah, well, I knew I, I didn't have much time. Right, I had the end the end of my writing day was approaching, so I just had to finish it and move on which is good for me because I do, I can edit myself to death and I can edit a paragraph to death as well.
0: Well, and it's nice too, to have in some ways, this time pressure. Yeah. If you have too much time, then you'll, you'll wind up going on Twitter like I do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I've written great works of literature on Twitter. (laughs) Um, and it's a long book. I mean, a thousand words a day, like how many words in terms of the draft did you get to and then how much? How many were cut? You know what I'm saying? How many did you write in total versus what?
1: Oh, it was, the. you know, it was like an accordion. In each draft, it would be longer than shorter than longer than shorter. So I don't, I have no, I, I don't even remember how many words that first draft was. The funny thing was I had no idea I had written a long book because on a Word document, it made no, there was no... I couldn't make the leap to what a printed book would look like. So when I was told that it was so many pages, you know, more than 400 pages, it was a real surprise to me because I'm, I had no idea.
0: Well, how many words was it?
1: I really don't remember. A hundred and something. Yeah. It's a long book. Yeah. I mean, I it's not like,
0: it's not like insane, right. but it's, it's longer than average. Right.
1: Well, it's not insane in word cut. Might be just, might be insane.
0: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this entire, this entire adventure is insane. Let's just get that off the table. Um and then what about uh you know the different aspects of writing fiction is there something that like whether it's um exposition action dialogue uh all the different elements of fiction is there is there something or some aspect of it that you enjoy the most or feel like you have the greatest uh aptitude for i
1: I'm not entirely sure. I, I I enjoy. I enjoy writing scenes. I enjoy putting two people in a room, or on a hillside, and knowing that each of them wants something. Because every character has to have a desire, and then trying- Wait, what? <laughs> 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 um, I know. I know. I'm not. I'm queen of the obvious here no but, but it's it's
0: it, i mean honestly it's like worth from even all these years later it's nice to be reminded of fundamentals like basics like that yeah. you know if a scene feels like it's lacking in energy or, or juice it's usually because
1: character doesn't want something
0: or it's not yeah or doesn't want something badly enough right it's not worth wanting but right
1: yeah and in the case of this novel it was also the c- character usually had a secret so, secret and desire are usually made for a good fun scene, and I, I enjoy writing the scenes. I enjoy the way I enjoy writing little gestures that can change the the temperature of a scene that can move the control from one character to another. Um, I like tracing how a character can feel like she is in control of the conversation, then all of a sudden it's gone out of her grip. Those sorts of subtle things I really enjoy doing.
0: How much of the drafting process um, where you're taking Shalini, am I pronouncing that right? Shalini. Shalini. Through all, you know her adventures, how many of the scenes did you feel like had a direct connectivity to that which preceded it or that which was to follow versus, I know I just want to write this scene I can see it. I'm not exactly sure how it fits or maybe even where it precisely goes. Like, what was it? You know what I'm saying? Like, how how much of it was, I'll figure it out later, and how much of it was clear?
1: Probably 50-50.
0: That's a good ratio.
1: Yeah. It worked for me. Uh, Or rather, I had no choice. (laughs) That was how I wrote it. Uh, I think there there were a good number of scenes that I, I really had no idea what they were doing there, but I just wrote them anyway. And then there were, you know, about the same number of scenes that made a direct reference to the scene before.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and uh, in terms of like the hardest or the most challenging aspects of writing it, um, I think my instinct is always to think that the end is the hardest part because you've got to sort of make it all, you know, tie together and you've got to feel like you're leaving. Do you? <laughs> I feel have like... to
1: make it tie together?
0: Well, but I mean, I just feel like you have to, it doesn't have to be tied with a bow. But you have a, to a piece of rough twine? yeah it's okay. fine. <laughs> discarded shoelace just some some it, there, there has to be uh a degree of satisfaction and resolution for the reader, and that doesn't like I said, it doesn't mean it has to end perfectly and we don't have to have this like clean, but it has to make sense. it has to what's the old adage? it's like it's got to feel su- both surprising and inevitable Not
1: inevitable, right
0: So it's like did you struggle with that or is that easy?
1: None of it was easy. Okay, good. Not (laughs) one single... Have I given the impression that any of it was easy? (laughs) None of it was. That's what I like about you. (laughs) Uh, No, I worked very, very hard on the ending. And I will be frank about the fact that I'm not sure if I got it right. I don't know. I I think I provided the right... um, what I think to be the right amount of resolution versus mystery, surprising, yet inevitable. But, you know, that that was my judgment. And
0: When did you know you were done? Did you have, like, was there a moment where you're like, I mean, I guess there always is, but do you remember it?
1: When I was done with the first draft?
0: Or just when you were done?
1: When I was just done with the book. <laughs> <laughs> I think that was the point when my editor said, you're not getting this back you're done you're done (laughs) yeah
0: so you were just working you're working on it up until yeah someone basically takes it away from from me that makes sense though yeah you can noodle with these things forever
1: forever and with a long book there's lots of noodling to be done
0: and you need somebody at some point just to be like it's over yes let it go write another one right start all over again (laughs) oh my god um but a satisfying experience
1: it couldn't have been better in retrospect and all the work and the year the, all of that was, it all was necessary. It all make, has made a difference.
0: It's a good way to spend your time on earth. I think yeah. it's not easy. It's not without its headaches. It's not like better. I mean, I guess it's better than some things. I, I just mean that like, it seems like a a healthy mode of existence as a human being, at least as far as I can imagine. Maybe there are better things I'm missing, but it's a nice way to live, trying to make sense of uh, life by putting words on a page and telling stories.
1: I think it can also be deeply lonely, which I'm sure you have felt uh, sometimes you're to talking time. to a
0: man who spends eighty yeah. percent of his life in a garage. Right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is a very nice garage it's for the, the record the, the, it's very pleasant it is lots it's, of sun
0: lots of sun and very like, like lots of like whites and blues like soothing colors for somebody who has a degree in psychology she <laughs> right. can probably extrapolate why you need to keep me calm
1: <laughs> yes this is a nice
0: big fluffy blanket mm, I think. yeah yes. for, I, I lie on the couch in a fetal <laughs> position often yeah. um but you uh you finish this and you you know you had an editor so you obviously sold the book. So let's get to the, the business side of things. Okay. I know that when you go to Iowa, like one of the benefits of Iowa that, I'm, that probably distinguishes it from most uh, graduate writing programs is that you get a lot of agents coming through. It's like a farm system. It's like AAA in baseball. <laughs> um, was that the case? Did you find your agent while you were in graduate school who like, read a story and was like, let's do this? And then you wrote a book for the agent? Or did, was it, did you write the book and then go get the agent?
1: I wrote the book. Oh you did. Yes. and and my agent I I never met her. Um, Still? No, no, I've met her. I <laughs> I never met her until the book was about to be published. I met her once um at a very noisy bar in at AWP, but that was a, that was it. Um and she never I never met her at Iowa. She read a story that I had published and then she wrote to me and I said we basically said thank you very much i have nothing for you and then when i did have something for her their novel which was six years later i sent it to her
0: and she remembered you yes who's your agent may i ask
1: of course she's a fantastic agent her name is claudia ballard oh yeah and she's with wme yeah yeah
0: i've heard of her she, that's fancy
1: she is wonderful
0: and so you met her at what, what which awp was this awp chicago I was there. Was this like five years ago or so?
1: Yes, I believe it was. No, more than five more than years five. ago. It was in 2011.
0: Oh, yeah. I was yeah. there. Yes. Wandered. It's the only AWP. I, I went for like a few hours one Me day. Too. I, I didn't know what to do. Neither did I. Okay. Yeah. We should have said no, hello. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Why are we no, here? No, it was
1: very, um, I mean, I know that it's, it's just an extraordinarily complicated event. And um, yeah, I, I, I'm glad I went.
0: It's like nerd prom. I think a lot of people just go for the social aspect.
1: I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know.
0: Yeah, I didn't either. But uh, so you went and when you went to this bar, was it like a happenstance that you guys met or what did you plan to meet?
1: Well, she, we had been co- corresponding at that point and she uh-huh. said, I'm going to be at AWP if you want to say hello. Um, and I, I went and we said hello. I think literally that was all we said. And then I left. And that was it? That was it. And then I never met her until three weeks ago.
0: Oh, and how did that go? Wonderful. Another noisy bar? Or was no. This... Okay.
1: <laughs> it was a noisy restaurant. It was a noisy restaurant. <laughs> no, but she, she, she's, absolutely, she's absolutely stellar.
0: That's great. And so you finish the manuscript, you hand it off to her, and then the book goes to market.
1: Mm-hmm. Was it well, a... no, she helped me. Ed- we edited it even further. For how long? Another six months, probably.
0: Huh. And she made significant... Like, I feel like agents... They play, like, I I think from the outside looking in, particularly um, at the beginning, or if you don't have much uh, insight into this stuff, you would think, well, it's the editor. But the agent often has a strong editorial role in this process.
1: Right. And I wouldn't have signed with her if I didn't trust her on a purely literary um, level. But I do.
0: Based on her existing clients or the take that she had on your book having read it? Both. Both. Um, so yeah, you have to be, I think you have to be in sync creatively. Yes. If they have some vision for your book, that's totally at odds with yours, it's not going to work.
1: Yes. Which they, which is as much to their detriment as it is to yours. And often they wouldn't, I mean, I don't think she would have wanted to work with me if she didn't see language and writing the same way I do
0: did she like, uh, sometimes it's like a, such a relief to work with somebody who like saves you from yourself <laughs> or it's like, Oh, thank God you recommended cutting that. Cause now that I can actually see it, sure. it shouldn't have been there. So were there, did she make contributions to that?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. There were lots of very, um, very smart, very sharp suggestions she made that I had to then go and work on.
0: I think that like one of the I'm, I'm I'm venturing a guess, but it just seems to me sort of logical, I guess editors, but agents read so much. They do. They read good stuff. They read what's working. They read bad stuff because people are submitting stuff that's not fully baked. They read a ton. Yes. Hundreds and hundreds of pages a week if they're doing their job. And I've always found like, my, my agent, Erin Hosier, is about to publish her first book. Wow. Uh, a Congrats memoir. To her. But I would remember like I would be corresponding with her via email and I'd be like, she's a better writer than I am. (laughs) She's such a good writer, (laughs) you know, but it makes sense. You're spending that much time reading like way, way more than most writers I know just by virtue of the the job that they do. Right. It seems natural that they would be good writers too, and just have good, like well-honed instincts for all of it.
1: I, I'm sure that's true for many, for many people. Um, and like we said at the beginning, there's always room for another book.
0: Right, right. Um, so then once the editing with Claudia is done and, you, and she does take it to market, did it sell relatively quickly or did you have to wait?
1: It sold relatively quickly. Yeah. I sold it to Grove Atlantic.
0: Okay. But I mean, like, did you have, like, because my book was like 25 rejections. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, I don't think this is going to happen. And then one day the phone rang. Yeah. Or was it like, the book went out on Monday and on Wednesday it was like, we are, we're going to go to auction.
1: Uh,
0: <laughs> or was it a preempt?
1: <laughs> no, I. it's funny. I've never... Um, I have not talked about this. Well,
0: it's a happy story. It no, out. it is.
1: It's true. It's a very happy story. Uh, I I had lots of phone calls with different editors and I think it went out to 20 um, and I had a bunch of phone calls and I was very happy. And then... If we went to auction and nobody came to the table, <laughs> it was turned down by, by all of them, and wow. Grove bought, it. Grove and then bought gro- it. And then Grove, and then Grove, Grove was so f- passionate and firm about what, that they wanted it. Elizabeth Schmitz was the one who bought it, and it was it was great.
0: Well, what I always say, it only takes one,
1: it, and the right one,
0: and that's right. And you know, it's like. Uh, best advice I think I ever got when I was out looking for an agent. And I think the same holds true for a publisher is follow the enthusiasm.
1: Go where it's warm.
0: Yeah. You know, it's like, it's not like who's best or who's the most well positioned or what it's like, who's the person who really gets it. And is like, uh, visibly excited. Absolutely. And you can feel that because absent that when the going gets tough and the going will inevitably get tough, it's hard to sustain right, like that, any any kind of energy
1: and the experience I've had publishing with them has been unlike anything I could have imagined, and I think utterly unique how so well they they edited the book for two and a half years after mm. they bought it. Wow, and I worked with two different editors I, they made me edit it several times, which I think is. To you, their credit,
0: were you frustrated by that?
1: Sure, I mean, but we—it was obviously necessary. And now we had lots of conversations about it.
0: Were any of them contentious?
1: No, I mean, we were both. It's the, the what you ideally want is someone to be as passionate about the book, I think, as yourself. Right. And when you have p- people in the room who are passionate about the same thing, it's going to get passionate. (laughs) So we had lots of very intense, heated conversations about the book, but I never for a moment doubted that we all wanted the same thing.
0: That's sort of, I mean, that's great though. You want people to push you.
1: Absolutely. And they did.
0: And that investment of time and energy. And look, you both had the same goal, right? You want it to be a great book, right? You want it to be the best that it can be. And I imagine it, you know, it does get frustrating when you come back with like draft 27 or whatever it is. And they're like, uh, yeah, can you do this, 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 and this? And you're like, Jesus, (laughs) but you go back and you do it. And I imagine now, um, there must be a lot of gratitude for having somebody willing to go through all that with you.
1: I, I was the, the, the thing I'm going to say, yeah, exactly. Right. Because, you know, we, we talk so much about the work the writer does and I did do a lot of work. Um, but the work they put in, I mean, I had two editors, as I said before, Elizabeth Schmitz and Katie Racian, but not just them, the copy, it was copy edited multiple times. And, um, you know, Julia, Julia Bernard tobin from, from Grove was so careful about it, um, Katie and Elizabeth, and it, it just, it just, it felt very much like I wasn't the only one doing the work and so when the book would come back with all of these notes with somebody who had read it so carefully who had clearly worked on it so much it felt self indulgent to then throw a tantrum because if they can pull their weight i can pull my weight and it's my job right right and i think that's the thing that i learned over and above all from this from this editing process it's my job and i have to do it
0: Okay. So decision-making processes about individual, um, editorial, uh, decisions, you know, where you're trying to make decisions about what to do and what not to do. And ultimately, at least as I understand it, I mean, it's the writer who has the final call in literature, which Mm. is one of the beauties of literature. Right,
1: And that was always, that was always went unsaid, but it was very much
0: so. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's like, it can get a little stressful because sometimes it's hard to know. Sometimes it's like, wait, this is maybe a good idea, but I'm not sure if I'm a hundred, you know? So did, did you go through some of those where it was tough to know? And if so, was there some process that you went through to make a final decision or was it just intuition?
1: Combination of intuition and talking to various people who had read the book, but ultimately it's you make the decision and you hope very much that it's the right one. But I think with that With those things, as with the quality of the book in general, I will never know. I will never actually know whether I wrote a good book or
0: not. Without that stuff?
1: At all. I think there's that great poem, right? The Merwin poem, W.S. Merwin, um, Berryman. And I'm paraphrasing because I can never memorize poetry, but he asks John Berryman, uh, the, the speaker asks John Berryman, I think, w- how will I know if what I have written is any good? And Berryman replies, and of course this is all a poem and I'm just making it into an anecdote because I'm a <laughs> fiction writer. Uh, Berryman replies, you will never know. You You can never know. You will never know. And if you need to know, don't write. So I don't think... Anything you've written, you will never know if it's good. And anything I've written, I will never really know if it's good. But that's not why we do it.
0: Is this podcast good?
1: (laughs) We will never know. (laughs) Oh, my God. No, actually, I can definitively say this podcast is excellent. I know because of my deep psychological background.
0: (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, she's been diagnosing me this entire time. Um, well, it is such a joy to meet you. <laughs> lovely, to, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much for And it. you are uh, working on another book. I am. Can we get any hint as to what it is, or is it top secret?
1: Top secret.
0: You don't divulge anything?
1: I don't think I can.
0: But it's a novel. It is a novel. You'll say that much.
1: I will say that much. Well,
0: can we at least know what phase you're in? Are you in this like messy, early drafting Very phase? Very much so.
1: Deep in the messy, early drafting. The reason I won't say anything um, is because I know that if I say it out loud it's going to sound not as wonderful as it is in my head right now.
0: It takes a long time to get to the point where you can just describe your book in a sentence or two.
1: Exactly. And I think that the point that's the point where it's done and you can't change it. Right. right. It's out of your hands. So you well, might
0: as well talk about it. Well, uh, I wish you well on that. And thank you once more for coming by.
1: Thank you so much, Brian. Thank you for having me.
0: Okay. That is Madhuri Vijay and her debut novel, is called The Far Field. It is out there now from Grove Press. Madre Vijay, The Far Field. Go get your copy right now. If you want to track Madri down on the internet, her website is madrivijay.com. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total, as always, for the theme song music. Thank you to Tiger in My Tank for the interstitial music. Thank you to DeZank Books and the novel 37 by Peter Stenson for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you to The Great Courses Plus for sponsoring. Be sure to go to thegreatcoursesplus.com to get your free month. If you would like to write to me, the address once again is letters at otherppl.com. If you want to follow the show on Twitter, at otherppl is the handle... The show's official website is otherppl.com. Don't forget, the Other People Podcast has its own official app. It is free. The Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Go get it. Next week on the program, my guest will be Sarah McCall. She just debuted with a memoir called Joy Enough, available from uh, Live Right. We had a really good time as well. Sarah McCall, author of the memoir Joy Enough, coming up next Wednesday. You guys know that the archive of this podcast is free, right? Almost 600 episodes, all of it is available for free. It's all out there. If you would like to tip your server, you can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Okay, I think that's it. I think we've done it. We've made a podcast, have we not? Be very nice to people today. Especially people on the losing end of the cosmic arrangement.